Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity and New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Tala Rahib from Emory University. The Politics of Persecution, Middle Eastern Christians in Age of Empire, written by Mitri Rahib and published by Baylor University Press in 2021, offers a decolonial and insider's perspective on the story of Middle Eastern Christians throughout the past two centuries. What sets this book aside from other related works is that it provides historical context, contemporary analysis, and critical reflections by placing, quote, the status of Christians within the wider geopolitical context of the Middle East, and looks at how international factors and regional developments have affected the presence of Christians in the Middle East, the rise and fall of Middle Eastern Christianity, and the role played by Christians during different eras, end quote. Furthermore, this monograph charts the plight of Christians in the Middle East from the invasion of Napoleon Bonaparte in 1799 to the so-called Arab Spring and analyzes the diverse socioeconomic and political factors that led to the diminishing role and numbers of Christians in Palestine, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan during the eras of Ottoman, French, and British empires, through the eras of independence, pan-Arabism, and pan-Islamism, and into the current era of American empire. Central to the author's argument is that, quote, Middle Eastern Christians survived successive empires by developing great adaptability in adjusting to changing contexts. They learned how to survive atrocities and how to resist creatively while maintaining a dynamic identity. In this light, Mitri Raheb cast the history of Middle Eastern Christians, not so much as one of persecution, but as one of resilience, end quote. So over the course of our conversation today, we'll take a closer look at this important work, how this book takes us on an exciting journey in revisiting the complex history of Middle Eastern Christianity, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope that you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Mitri Rahib, the author of The Politics of Persecution, Middle Eastern Christians in an Age of Empire. Reverend Dr. Mitri Rahib is the founder and president of Dar al-Kalima University in Bethlehem. Dr. Rahib is also a co-founder of Bright Stars of Bethlehem, a not-for-profit 501c3 in the USA. 
the most widely published Palestinian theologian to date, Dr. Rahib is the author and editor of 40 books, including The Cross in Context, Suffering and Redemption in Palestine, Faith in the Face of Empire, The Bible Through Palestinian Eyes, I Am a Palestinian Christian, and Bethlehem Besieged. His books and numerous articles have been translated so far into 11 languages. Dr. Rahib served as the senior pastor of the Christmas Lutheran Church in Bethlehem from June 1987 to May 2017, and as the president of the Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land from 2011 to 2016. Dr. Rahib was elected in 2018 to the Palestinian National Council and to the Palestinian Central Council. A social entrepreneur, Dr. Rahib has founded several NGOs, including the Christian Academic Forum for Citizenship in the Arab World, CAFCAO. He is a founding and board member of the National Library of Palestine and a founding member and author of Kairos Palestine. Dr. Rahib received in 2017 the Tolerance Award from the European Academy of Sciences and Arts, and in 2015, the Olof Palme Prize. In 2012, the German Media Prize was awarded to Dr. Rahib. Launched in 1992, this award was mainly granted to heads of states, including President Obama, 2016, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, 2009, Bill Clinton, 1999, Nelson Mandela, 1998, King Hussein of Jordan, 1997, Boris Yeltsin, 1996, President Arafat, um, 1995, Yitzhak Rabin, 1995. He also received for his outstanding contribution to Christian education through research and publication an honorary doctorate from Concordia University in Chicago in 2003, and for his interfaith work, the international Muhammad Nafi Shalabi Peace Award of the Central Islam Archive in Germany in 2006 and in 2007, the well-known German Peace Award of Aachen. The work of Dr. Rahib has received wide media attention from major international media outlets and networks, including CNN, ABC, CBS, 60 Minutes, BBC, AR Day, CDF, DW, BR, Premier, Stern, The Economist, Newsweek, Al Jazeera, Al Mayadeen, Vanity Fair, and others. So welcome, Dr. Rahab, um, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you this evening. I think it'll be wonderful, Dr. Rahab, if you could start us off today by telling us a few words about yourself. That is, where did you grow up? Uh, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study. And do please feel free to mention any influential interlocutors uh, you might have had along the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was born in Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem, Palestine, not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, grew up here in the little town. Um, I uh, did my theological studies including my doctorate in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and uh, doctorate at uh, Phillips University in Marburg. Mm -hmm. uh, my uh, thesis uh, was about uh, the heritage of reformation in Palestine, which really is, was to research the history of the uh, Lutheran Church uh, in Palestine. Um, and um, coming back uh, from Germany after staying there for almost eight years, um, I was facing the first Palestinian uprising. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was actually uh, something that my theological education did not uh, prepare me for. Uh, and um, actually this led me uh, reading every day the Bible and then every day the newspaper and somehow trying to connect the dots. Uh, this led me to developing uh, a Palestinian contextual theology uh, that actually I keep developing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also later to uh, establish an institution, a university, where uh, one of the focus really is to develop a, a Palestinian art, mm. a distinct Palestinian art uh, that will, um, you know, deal with the Palestinian identity, speak to the Palestinian people, but also tell uh, their story to the uh, wider world. Um, thank you for um, your answer. Um, I would like to invite you to tell us more about how you came to write The Politics of Persecution. How did this idea develop? And as you retrace how this decolonial project came to fruition, we would also love to hear more about your research process and who your intended readers are. Yeah, you know, uh, I noticed actually uh, in the last years how the, this uh, issue of Christian persecution in the Middle East uh, has become uh, like uh, a topic that is uh, uh, widely covered in newspapers. Mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, it was the time when President Trump and Vice President Pence uh, especially Pence uh, was talking about wanting to help uh, the persecuted Christians in Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually uh, this, um, and also I noticed that there are many media outlets who describe our situation as Palestinian Christians as being persecuted, which is not true. Uh, and so this took me on a journey uh, to write this book, uh, actually, especially to people in the West that do not know uh, the history of Christians in this region and how actually that Western empire uh, played a negative role uh, most of the time. Um, but also the second uh, target group of the book are the um, people of the Middle East themselves, because often they don't really know their own story and their own history. Well, thank you so much for those insights too. I think what only the author can really provide for our listeners. And as we turn, you know, to the beginning pages of your book, um, it is comprised of 12 chapters, you know, plus an introductory chapter and an epilogue. And if I can briefly highlight here, includes a very detailed bibliography um, that you, you utilize as well. 
um, for our listeners, you know, you should not be overwhelmed by the number of chapters uh, this book entails, as each chapter is, o- is only around 10 to 15 pages. Um, but each chapter is lucidly written and very engaging as it traces the diverse experiences of Christians in the history of the modern uh, Middle East. Um, Dr. Ahab, uh, I particularly enjoyed reading the introduction as you eloquently lay the foundations of your book, what the reader must first understand before you know, beginning this journey and learning more about the history of the Middle Eastern Christianity, um, especially as you highlight some key words for us, such as persecution, empire, and geopolitics. And in the introduction, you you mentioned that you employ a regional approach in investigating the history of Christian persecution from a geopolitical perspective, you know, going back to two centuries, um, starting with the Ottoman era and up to the current era of the American empire. I was wondering if you could expound more on the key words I mentioned, um, you know, the words persecution, empire, and geopolitics and why you have taken this regional approach um, to your book. And if I may squeeze just one more question here, how does this book build on your previous books and also your previous projects? Wow, I mean, these are so many questions uh, bundled in one, but uh, you know, um, uh, Palestine uh, and our region, which we call the Middle East uh, or uh, West Asia and North Africa, uh, actually is a region that uh, uh, suffered under uh, recurring empires. Uh, in the book, I look at the last uh, 200 years. Uh, and so we had uh, the Ottoman Empire first. Uh, they were replaced by two empires, the British and the French. Uh, and then the State of Israel was created actually by the empire to be, as uh, as to say, uh, uh, a proxy empire. Uh, and with empire, I mean, actually, it is the, uh, it is the uh, coming together of military power, economic power, uh, media, uh, uh, but even theology, uh, uh, and to have these concentrated uh, in one uh, entity, uh, which makes this entity then an empire. Um, and so we, our region, suffered a lot under these recurring uh, empires. Uh, so this is what I mean with with uh, with empire. Why uh, why the regional approach? Because uh, through the regional lens you can see uh, different uh, angles uh, of the topic. Uh, This is why I look at the Armenians, I look at the Palestinians, I look at the uh, uh, Lebanese, uh, etc. And each has its own uh, distinct context, and yet the region as such is also distinct from other regions. uh, and uh, the geopolitical lens is really important uh, because uh, I don't think this is uh, done uh, enough in research. Uh, but uh, for me, it was important to look 
from a geopolitical perspective uh, at the region uh, because it's a distinct region and yet um, it has uh, in each of its countries also uh, distinct uh, challenges and problems. Um, thank you for your detailed answer. In connection to your explanation of the history of empires in the region, in chapter one, you begin by highlighting some of the important socio-religious changes that were taking place in the Middle East during the rise of the Ottoman Empire. What I found fascinating here was this church-state relationship. This interesting relationship between the churches and the Muslim Ottoman Empire coexisting through what you highlight as the millet system. Dr. Rahib, for our listeners that might be new to the Ottoman Empire, do you mind elaborating more on the millet system and its significance? How did this system influence Christians during this time? Yeah, actually, you know, the Ottomans developed this so-called millet system uh, which uh, made of uh, every church a kind of a mini-state within the uh, super-state or the Ottoman Empire, as long as uh, this church uh, recognizes, uh, you know, uh, the state uh, uh, on the one hand, but also the state recognizes or the empire recognizes that uh, churches, each church has its own, uh, you know, laws, uh, uh, for example, regarding personal status laws. Uh, they have a kind of an autonomy, uh, autonomy as long as they uh, ex uh, accept uh, the, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the imperial structure and the ruler which is uh, the, the, the Ottoman Caliph uh, in that sense. Uh, and this actually uh, um, had its uh, positive as well as negative side. Its positive sides because churches could uh, run their own businesses without much interference from the states when it comes to marriage, divorce, uh, inheritance, uh, etc. But it meant also a, a problem uh, because uh, it meant that, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, the situation of Christians became very static. Uh, and uh, uh, churches uh, uh, became like, uh, you know, uh, uh, like in a museum. Uh, uh, with a static identity that cannot change easily. And this was also a problem. Well, thank you for that um, answer, Dr. Rahab. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, towards the end of chapter one, two, and also throughout chapter two, we are also introduced here to uh, a figure named Muhammad Ali, who seized power um, in Egypt uh, during the early 19th century. And the major changes he brought um, to the Middle East, um, and that is one of the significant developments we see in the Middle East was not only American and European consulates uh, being established in major cities, but also the active work of foreign Christian missionaries. 
Uh, one interesting relationship we see here is, you know, as you mentioned, not only between the church and state relationship, but here also between the Western, uh, for example, Protestant and Catholic missionaries and the local, you know, Orthodox churches. So I was wondering, Dr. Rahab, could you tell us a little bit more about this intricate dynamic between the missionaries and the local churches uh, during this time? Yeah, actually, uh, you know, early 19th century, uh, if we look at the Middle East, we had so-called national churches. Uh, these are uh, churches that developed in the early uh, centuries from, you know, uh, like the third and uh, fourth uh, century uh, AD. Uh, and uh, they develop a very special relationship between uh, the uh, Christian identity and the national identity. So uh, this is the era when, for example, the Armenian church developed. So Armenian, being Armenian, that is a distinct Christian identity, and yet also it's a national identity. Being Armenian, that's like being American. Uh, the same for the Copts. Uh, those are the Christians in Egypt. Um, uh, you know, uh, the same, uh, the uh, Lebanese Christians with the Maronite church, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, so, so this is, in this concept, actually, this is a unique con uh, concept. Uh, and all of these churches were either Orthodox, uh, which means these are Greek Orthodox, uh, and they are the successor of the Byzantine Empire, or they were what we call national Orthodox, like the Copts, Armenian, Syriac, etc. So uh, then, uh, early uh, 19th century uh, to mid 19th century, we see uh, Catholic missionaries coming, especially from Italy and France, um, uh, to, to our region and uh, also uh, American uh, and British and German uh, missionaries coming as well, uh, Protestant uh, mainly. Uh, uh, and all of them actually came here originally for two reasons. One, to convert Jews to Christianity, and the other to convert Muslims. Uh, however, uh, when time uh, went on, they actually all what they did was to uh, help the, uh, the uh, Christians in this region uh, actually uh, uh, to uh, you know to to recruit them to become members in the new Catholic and Protestant churches and mainly through education so education actually played a major role in this missionary enterprise, which means, uh, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants today were, uh, their followers were originally not Muslims who converted to Christianity, by, but they were Orthodox Christians who changed their denomination to become either Catholic or Protestant. 
Thank you for that detailed answer. Uh, to continue the conversation regarding the Christians of the region, Chapter 3 provides us with a close look at the politics of persecution as you bring to light a tragic event that took place on Mount Lebanon, where 10,000 Maronite Christians were massacred over a span of several weeks in the summer of 1860 by the Druze. I was wondering if you could shed some light on what led to such a devastating massacre and how this ties up to the politics of persecution as you discuss in this chapter, the different narratives regarding this incident. Yeah, this incident took place in, uh, in uh, Lebanon, in Mount Lebanon uh, in 1860, uh, when over 10,000 uh, Christians, mainly Maronite Christians, were massacred by the Druze, and the Druze basically is a Muslim sect. Uh, now, uh, uh, Western media portrayed this event as persecution of Christians by Druze. Uh, but that's actually not the true story, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, the war started by an uprising uh, of uh, poor Christians, uh, mainly, uh, you know, uh, uh, working uh, in the agricultural uh, field against their Christian landlord. And also uh, uh, Druze, poor Druze uh, people, farmers, against their uh, uh, own uh, landlord who were also Druze. So it was actually a kind of a social uprising. But in the Western media, it was portrayed actually as a religious war uh, of Druze against Christian and that Christians are actually being persecuted by the Druze, which actually was not uh, the fact that we are uh, talking about here. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, interesting how, for example, British uh, media, which I cite extensively here, uh, how they started port portraying uh, the Christians in Lebanon as uh, victims uh, and as, uh, as if the Muslims are there to rape their uh, women, uh, to take over their uh, uh, land. Uh, businesses, etc. So, uh, uh, but again, that's not true. And I, 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 uh, I hear uh, write also extensively about Utrus uh, uh, who uh, actually uh, was writing uh, pamphlets uh, on daily basis, uh, if not weekly, uh, actually saying this is not a religious war. Uh, this is something else, and we have to name to name it by name. Thank you for for that um, insightful answer, Dr. Rahev. Um, in chapter six and seven, um, we're moving along into towards the latter half of the book. Um, you discussed colonialism throughout the Middle East and the rise of also nationalism, and how both had a devastating impact um, on the Middle East, uh, particularly on the Christian community. I was wondering if you could talk a little more on how Western obsession with ideas of homogeneity, um, which the Middle East was um, never culturally nor religiously homogeneous, you know, influence 
the presence of Christian communities in the regions and turn them into minorities? And how do these Western ideas of homogeneity continue to influence the Middle East in general and Palestine in particular? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the uh, two empires, the British and mm. the French, uh, when they controlled uh, the region, uh, Britain controlled uh, Palestine, uh, Jordan and Iraq, and the French, Syria and Lebanon. Um, and the British were also in Egypt. And uh, especially after uh, uh, First World War, uh, they introduced the British, uh, the idea of minority, uh, to describe the Christians and few other sects. Uh, and this is connected somehow to the whole idea of persecution. Because if they are minority, then they are actually, uh, you know, persecuted by the majority uh, who are or who happen to be uh, Muslim. So uh, this is when uh, the two powers, especially the British, introduced the idea of the minority, which means the minority is always under threat from the majority. Um, and this is how they were portraying uh, the region. Secondly, they introduced the, the notion of sectarianism. So they looked at the region not as one whole uh, community, but as a community uh, with distinct sects. Uh, and so, for example, the French, who actually were very secularized in France uh, with their laicity uh, ideology, divided uh, Syria into fear uh, into four uh, um, uh, like counties, uh, according and along sectarian lines. So they had, uh, uh, you know, something for the Sunni. They have something for the Alawites, uh, etc. Uh, and the same they did in Lebanon with Baronite versus Muslim. And uh, also the same they did in Palestine by uh, defining Palestine as a homeland for the Jewish people. Again, you know, the sectarian uh, language, which really we suffer uh, under. And remember, in 1947-1948, the British Empire did three major sins, if you want. Uh, you know, the first sin was to divide uh, India and Pakistan uh, uh, along religious lines. So in India, you have the, uh, the Hindu. Uh, in, uh, in Pakistan, you have the Muslims. And we still have the problem in Kashmir until now. Then in the same year, 47-48, the British actually legalized the apartheid system in South Africa. I mean, the apartheid system was there before uh, de facto, but uh, um, then it was done to be de jure, which means now it's actually, the law says uh, to separate black from whites along racial lines. Uh, and the same thing they did in Palestine, actually, uh, when 1947 at the UN, uh, the UN voted to divide uh, historic Palestine into two. Uh, and uh, 
uh, along uh, ethnic lines, uh, Jewish versus Arab. Um, thank you for your response. The ideas you discussed about minorities and sectarianism still play a role in the Western imagination. In fact, many American and Western Christians perceive Israel as a safe haven um, for Palestinian Christians from Muslim persecution, yet the Palestinian Christian presence continues to dwindle. Furthermore, uh, recently in the news, there have been several instances in which Palestinian Christian properties were stolen or destroyed by Israeli extremists. Can you talk about Israel's treatment of um, Christians? What has it been like since 1948? How do we understand these recent property confiscations in light of the history of Palestine? Yeah, actually, you know, the whole idea of the state of Israel uh, was uh, from day one, actually, a colonial project uh, by the empire, by the British empire. Uh, and uh, uh, the idea was uh, uh, Europe had a problem with the uh, Jews in Europe. Uh, they didn't see them as equal citizens. They saw them as uh, people of other faith and actually uh, as, as a people that does not belong to Europe. Uh, because they were Jewish and because the, this idea of nationalism meant that uh, every people should have their own land and their own language and culture and religion. And so the Jews did not fit in Europe. And so uh, when, uh, when Jews in Russia started to be actually, uh, you know, um, persecuted, uh, there were the pogroms in Russia. Many of them wanted to flee to Egypt, uh, to, 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 to Britain. And Britain actually closed the doors uh, for those uh, uh, immigrants. They didn't want to have any Jewish immigrants. And so the idea was developed in this time that Jews actually do not belong to Europe. They belong to Palestine. Uh, and so uh, British politicians thought, aha, actually we can work with this idea and send all the Jews to Palestine. Uh, first of all, we get rid of them. And second, they can be actually uh, a, a part of an extension to the empire and they will really serve the empire. Uh, and so really this is uh, what uh, happened uh, to Palestine uh, by creating uh, there a Jewish homeland uh, in service of the British Empire. This is how it was originally. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ahab, for that thorough answer. Um, and following the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, and particularly after um, the Six-Day War in 1967, various theologies about God's divine plan and you know Israel's role in it took off. I was wondering if you can elaborate on how this period and the following events you know played a role in shaping the religious landscape in this region, and how did the how did 1967 shape Jewish you know Christian you know Western and Arab and Muslim religious um, identities, and how did these religious identities, you know, intersect uh, with politics as well? Yeah, actually, 1967 triggered uh, 
three kind of uh, religious fundamentalisms, uh, Jewish fundamentalism, Muslim fundamentalism, and Christian fundamentalism. Um, and the reason for that was actually what happened in the war in 1967. Uh, within six days, Israel was able actually to occupy the West Bank, including Jerusalem, uh, the Golan Heights, and part of uh, Sinai Peninsula. Uh, and their victory was really uh, devastating for the Arab countries, uh, because the Arab countries uh, under Egypt, uh, Nasser, uh, you know, were portraying themselves as very strong, uh, but the war uh, proved different. And this created for the Arab people a, a dilemma because they believed in God is great, but they are weak. Um, the the pan-Arabism, the idea that somehow all Arabs belong together proved not to be true. Um, and so they started actually leaving to Islam and the slogan became Islam is the answer. Um, now, at the same time, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, Christians in the West looked at Israel uh, as uh, a very um, attractive uh, model, functioning model. Uh, remember, uh, at that time, that era, uh, uh, the U.S. actually lost its war in Vietnam. And this created a major crisis for uh, Christians uh, in, in the United States. How come that we lost the war? We, the great country, you know. Uh, uh, and so when Israel won the war, they saw this as a divine miracle. A small state like Israel was able to, you know, uh, to beat up all the Arab countries uh, around her. And so the image of David versus Goliath uh, became uh, very widespread uh, at that time. Um, so, so this is the what we call Christian Zionism, because you know some Christians started thinking, "Wow, you know, this is the state of Israel that is that was created, is uh, so to say, the proclamation that uh, the second coming of Christ is near." The third uh, group uh, actually were the Jewish fundamentalists because you know this uh, this quick victory, and especially being in uh, in uh, in the West Bank, uh, which is in the Jewish language Judea and Samaria, where most of the biblical uh, places are, uh, uh, you know. Uh, being in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall, uh, that actually was uh, a feeling of such a magnitude that Jews became drunk in their own power. Uh, and this actually created uh, a Jewish messianism, uh, uh, which really means that uh, we don't need to wait for the Messiah. We are the Messiah. We have to take everything in our hands. Uh, so, so this is how three fundamentalisms 
were created around the year uh, 67. Thank you for your response. As we move towards the last chapter, you highlight the various challenges facing the Middle East today, including wars, lack of human security, climate change, immigration, and others. Despite such a troubling future, how have Middle Eastern Christians contributed to a better Middle East in areas of theology, culture, and politics? Yeah, actually, you know, uh, Christians in the Middle East played a major role first in the 19th century uh, with the so-called Renaissance. Uh, they were uh, capable of translating many books from European languages into Arabic. Uh, but also, you know, uh, in that area, they were uh, able to develop uh, ideas uh, about... Uh, and, and, and to develop the Arabic language uh, to become the uh, primary language, not the Turkish uh, Ottoman language that was uh, at that time there. And this uh, actually triggered Arab nationalism uh, and, and the quest for independence uh, from the uh, Ottoman Empire. Well, thank you for that great answer, um, Dr. Rehab. I As we head toward the end of our interview today, there are two questions we would like to also ask you, and that is, you know, what do you hope students and scholars working on world Christianity, um, like Atala and myself also, will take um, from your book? What new doors of research uh, would you say your book opens up to? Yeah, I think it's really important uh, that we, living in the Global South, uh, will uh, develop uh, the, the tools and will have the means to tell our own story the way we see it and not the way the West wants to portray it. Unfortunately, we are, as individuals, uh, working against uh, huge, um, you know, machineries who are, you know, provided all of these uh, cheap uh, uh, stories many of them which are not true. Uh, and this is why I think it's really important that that we, uh, first of all, uh, invest uh, more and more in supporting a young scholar from the Global South. Uh, secondly, that we create networks where, uh, and maybe interdisciplinary networks, not only for theologians, uh, but people from, say, in this case, from the Middle East who live in the Middle East, scholars and scholars uh, of Palestinian origin living in the United States or in the UK, bringing everyone together and creating these networks, I think, can change really the history of our region. Thank you. And as a way to conclude our interview today, do you mind sharing with us what you are currently working on? Maybe a little bit about your future projects as well. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm, I'm working on three books that will come out in 2023. Uh, the first one is a, a kind of continuation of other books that I have written about Christianity in the Middle East. Uh, and it will, uh, th this book is called In the Eye of the Storm, mm -hmm. Middle Eastern Christians in the 21st Century. So my other books actually ended all end of 20th century. Now this book will look at the situation of Christians, especially in the context of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first book, uh, which I'm editing. 
because we have uh, several contributors uh, to it. The second one uh, is a book on uh, emerging theologies in the global south, mm. uh, really looking at uh, all of these exciting theologies that developed all the way from South Africa to uh, to New Zealand, to uh, Australia, to Canada, mm. to the United States. Uh, um, and this is a major work with a contribution of over, I think, 20 scholars. And the third book, which is my own book, uh, new book, uh, which is called uh, um, um, Decolonizing Palestine, Land, people and Bible. Uh, and I look especially at the uh, notion of uh, uh, land, promised land, and the notion of uh, chosen people. Uh, and uh, connect those to the notion uh, uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, of uh, like, uh, um, I mean, you know, linking those to uh, the notion of uh, uh, religious nationalism, mm. uh, Christian Zionism, and settler colonialism. Well, Dr. Rahab, um, those sound like very interesting projects, and we truly look forward to reading more of your works. And once again, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast today with Tala and myself. You are most welcome, and I hope that people who will read the book will uh, enjoy it and uh, learn a, a great deal about uh, Christians in the Middle East. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode in which we explored uh, the politics of persecution, Middle Eastern Christians in an Age of Empire, written, written by Mitri Raheb and published by Baylor University Press in 2021. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi. And Tala Rahim. And stay tuned uh, for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.